Well, most of us know what it's like to lose something. Keys, money, glasses, an umbrella, horror of horrors, the TV remote. Sometimes what people lose is less tangible. They can be things like your temper, your patience, maybe your memory, or even your reputation. As we continue today in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to see where the Apostle Paul was concerned about the Christians in Galatia because he says you have lost something very, very important, which was their understanding of their position in Christ. And thus, they lost their freedom and joy that they should have had in Christ. In the first part of chapter 4, Paul said that as those who had come to Christ, they were children of God and they had the blessing of an inheritance that was coming to them. But they had, they had been walking away from that. As we look in Galatians beginning in 4.8 today, what Paul's going to tell these believers is you're not acting like heirs of God. You're, you're, you're those who have forgotten what it means to be sons and daughters of God. So what he does today is he reminds them and us of our relationship that comes through Jesus Christ. He says, why would you want to forsake the privilege you have as sons and the inheritance you have to instead live as slaves in bondage under a system of rules and rituals? So I invite you to look with me today as we begin by reading in Galatians 4, 8 through 10. Paul says, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? I want to remind you that Paul is writing to the churches in the region of Galatia. That's why this book is called the Galatia, the, you know, we call it Galatians, because this is the, the, the region in the area. And as we talked about early in this series, that was a Gentile area. It was a Roman province that had uh, predominantly Gentiles in the area. And as such, what it meant is they came out of a background following the pagan gods and goddesses, the Roman system, the Greek system that they were immersed in. There were, there were statues and icons and temples to these false gods that were found all throughout the Roman regions. And, and these pagan gods, as they worshipped them, as Gentiles before they came to know the one true God, uh, the way that you worship pagan gods in that day was out of fear. These, these false gods were thought to live in a realm that was all their own. They didn't interact with the inferior mortal humans. When uh, the mythological ancient writings said the gods did interact with humans, uh, it was never a good thing for the people because these gods would use the people either to fulfill some sexual lust or to take something from them. So the system that was set up was to give offerings to the gods to appease them to hope that the gods would forget all about you and just ignore you. And as Paul is writing about these pagan gods, the first thing he says is they were not. They were not gods at all. He's, he's reminding them they were man-made. They were nothing more than, than deaf, blind, and dumb statues who were mere images. He contrasts these cold, dead pieces of marble that they were used to seeing and worshiping in their past with the true and living God, Yahweh, a God who created us and wants to have a personal relationship with us. You know, as Christians, we talk about receiving the gift of eternal life when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I think that many of us think the word eternal life means that we're going to live forever. 
And that certainly is part of what eternal life means. But eternal life is, isn't just about the length of our life. It's also about the relationship that we, we have when we come to know the Lord of life. In John 17, 3, we're told this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, when we read this word know, both in John 17, 3, and again here in our passage in Galatians 4, 9, it's the Greek word gnosko. And this is a word that doesn't mean just to have head knowledge. There's a different Greek word for that. That's oida. Oida means you know facts, you, you have a head knowledge. But gnosko means you have an experiential knowledge. It moves from the head to the heart level. It means that you actually have a relationship, a personal uh, relationship with the living God. And this is what he's talking about. God wants us to have this relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. God's not interested in us just having knowledge being able to, to quote Bible verses or, or, or knowing things where we follow rules and rituals. He says, I want you to know me at a personal level where you have this relationship that comes through my son, Jesus Christ. And as Paul saw the Galatian believers here slipping back into this legalistic system where they knew things, they knew the law, they were walking uh, in a way that was rules and rituals, Paul says, you're turning back. Now, they had come out of paganism, so Paul isn't saying you're turning back to the pagan gods, but he says really all you're doing is switching labels because you're doing the exact same thing. Uh, because what you're doing is you, you were previously slaves and living in fear to pagan gods, and now you become a slave and living in fear to the Mosaic law. Paul says, why do you want to go back to the elemental things? And the Greek word he uses here is stoikia. Uh, this is a word that Paul used back in Galatians 4.3, and he repeats it here. Uh, it's a very important word, so let me give you a dictionary definition. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the word this way. Any first thing from which the others belonging to some series or a composite whole take their rise, an element, a first principle. Now, some of you are saying, Roger, I lost an hour of sleep this morning, and you just lost me. I have no idea what that word means. So let me, let me illustrate it. Let me unpack the word further for you. Because in Greek literature, this word was used to refer to the elements of the material visible world. It was the things that were uh, in nature, fire, water, air, and earth. Before we knew words like matter and atoms, this is a word that was used to talk about the elements from which all things have come in terms of the material cause of the universe. God is the one who created all things. But what Paul is talking about is uh, these basic building blocks. This word was also used to speak of the letters of an alphabet, again, because uh, they are the building blocks of speech. Letters in an alphabet mean nothing in and of themselves. But when you learn them and when you arrange them correctly, they create words that have meaning and they point people to what we want them to understand. And Paul's point here is that the law is, is that. We talked about this earlier. Back in Galatians 3.24, we saw that the law was our tutor. And there we talked about the Greek word pedagogue that was used that is translated as tutor. And if you miss that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because uh, we don't have time today to go into the full depth of what it means to be under the law again as our pedagogue. But a, a summary of it you'll remember is that a, a pedagogue was a guardian. 
It was the overseer of a minor child. The master would appoint a slave who would be the disciplinarian, who would guide the child, who would keep them on the straight and narrow. The job of the pedagogue was to take the child from the home to the school and then back again. Uh, A pedagogue was not the teacher, but it was designed to be the person who got you to the destination. And in the case of the law, the law was designed to get us to our divine destination of meeting Jesus Christ who was our liberator, our savior. And this is what Paul is continuing to develop here, to remind them that the Mosaic law came from God, so it's far superior to paganism. But he says in terms of what the law is designed to do, it doesn't save you, like the Judaizers, these legalists were saying. Paul says the law was designed to get us, to help us understand who God is and and what God did for us as he gave us the Messiah, his son Jesus who came to die for us. It's why he says here that the Mosaic law is weak and worthless. Now, Paul isn't denigrating the law. He's not saying, I hate the law. I want to remind you that before Paul became Paul the apostle as a believer in Christ, he was Saul the Pharisee. Paul was a guy who devoted his life to knowing and studying the law. He had been a teacher. He loved the law. But what he's saying to the Galatians is, listen, The law is not to save you. It is not a system of salvation like these false legalists are telling you. And so what what Paul is warning the Galatians and us today is we need to understand what the law is for. It doesn't save us. He's made clear all throughout this book of Galatians that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in what Christ did for us on the cross. That Jesus died to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And when we receive that gift of his death in our place, we are saved. We talked earlier in Galatians how the righteousness of God is imputed to us and he pays the penalty, he covers the account and he closes the account that we're owed. And what Paul is saying here is you have gone back to living under the law. It's what he's he's describing in verse 10. He says you observe days. And this is speaking of the weekly Sabbath. He says, in months, which would have been the new moon uh, type of festivals. Speaking of festivals, he says, in seasons. There were special things like Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles. And he says, in years. This was speaking of the year of Jubilee and the sabbatical years. And, And none of these things in and of themselves were bad. Remember, Paul as a Jew, Paul as a Pharisee, he did these things. But Paul's point is this. He says, I was raised as a Jew. I was under these systems. And he said, so as a Jew, it's, it's fine that I was doing these things, but you are Gentiles. You were never under the law. You were a pagan worshiper. And, and you came to faith in Christ. You were set free from the penalty of your sins. And you were called to walk in freedom. And he says, but now you've come under this system of the law. You've made yourself a slave to, to ritual obedience of things that cannot save you. He's, he's saying earlier in the book, you'll remember, he said when the Judaizers created this system of follow the law, he said you've, you've neutered the gospel. You've eliminated the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And Paul says that's what you're doing, though. You've come under this, this system of works. And, and what he says is, you've, what you've really done is come right back under the world system. Now, you were following pagan gods that you said were in control. 
You would, you would sacrifice to uh, the fertility god to make your flocks grow. You would sacrifice to the rain god in order to have your crops growing. And he says, you're really doing the same thing, just switching labels. Because now you're, while God's law was from, from God himself, he says, you put yourself under this system of let me give you something to get something back. And God said, salvation is a gift freely given. And because of this, he says in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. As Paul thinks about all the time he invested, all the the blood, sweat, and tears that he he spent with them in Galatia, sharing the gospel and and helping them come to faith in Christ, you can picture him doing a, a face palm here, right? And he's just shaking his head. And, and, you know, we would think Paul's going to say, that's it, I'm done with you. But Paul does the exact opposite. Because in verses 12 through 20, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. Instead, he says, let me dig in deeper. Let me tell you how much I care for you. Let me tell you why these things are so important. Up to this point in this letter, Paul has been in this kind of confrontational mode. Remember, he started out having to defend his apostleship. He, he started out defending the gospel of grace. And, and Paul has had to be a lawyer where he's been presenting a, a case. Paul has had to be a learned theologian where he's in a classroom presenting the, the doctrines and the foundations of the faith. And he, he went all the way back to the roots of the, the Jewish race. Remember, we saw where he talked about the patriarch Abraham and how he was saved by his faith. And, and Paul has been just building this case all throughout Galatians, showing how the scriptures pointed to the promised Messiah. As Paul wrote, he used his own experience and that of the Galatians to reinforce what he's taught. And, and so as you're reading the first part of Galatians, it seems like kind of a Joe Friday writing, right? Just the facts, ma'am. It's kind of been impersonal. It's been confrontational. It's been building this case. And some will say it seems like Paul is more concerned about making his point than he cares about people. And if that's how you felt, then the next verses will show you that that's wrong because Paul has this deep, deep love for people, especially the Galatians here. He says in verses 12 through 20, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So I become, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the Judaizers he's talking about, eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will not seek, so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. What, what we see here is Paul the pastor comes out. 
Paul the shepherd, he sets aside his theologian hat. He sets aside this, this impersonal, contentious fighting. And he says, let me talk to you on a very personal level. Let me talk about how much I love you. And he says, I know that you, you love me as well. In verse 12, Paul says, you did me no harm. He's, he's saying, I'm not coming with this harsh letter to you because I'm, I'm mad at you or because I'm trying to you know, pay back what you did to me. Paul has come so strongly with his correction because he's like a, a mama bear here who will rise up and defend her cubs. As he sees what these legalists are doing to these believers, his little children, he calls them, he's come out swinging. And, and Paul is trying to protect them. And he says, why, why are you coming back under bondage? Paul says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul had been this proud, self-righteous Pharisee, trusting in his own righteousness and fulfilling the letter of the law, trying to be saved. But he says, but then I was set free. I came to understand who Jesus was, what Jesus did for me. And I want you to become as I am now, one who is free from the law. And he says, ironically, you've done the reverse. You who were free from the law, never under it, have brought yourself back under the law as slaves And so in verses 13 through 14, Paul, as he's talking about his love for them, says, let me tell you, you guys loved me. You loved me well. He speaks of a physical infirmity he had. Now, the Greek word used here speaks of a disease or an injury. And there's all kinds of debate among biblical scholars about what was Paul's infirmity? Was it the same thing as his thorn in the flesh that we're about to talk about? And so Paul is saying, look, I had this physical illness. I had some kind of a disease or injury. And and there are different views as as to what it is. Some say that Paul was struggling with malaria, uh, which he could have contracted when he was in the coastal lowlands of Pamphylia. If you read the book of Acts, you see Paul and Barnabas were down in this coastal area right before he came into the region of Galatia. And this was a hot, swampy area that was known for malaria back in the day. There were a bunch of mosquitoes. There was disease that was rampant in that area. And as you look at Acts 13, 13 through 14, it talks about how Paul and Barnabas quickly left uh, this region of Pamphylia and they went to Pisidian Antioch. Now, Pisidian Antioch was down in this region of Galatia. And the reason that scholars say Paul went there was because this was at 3,600 feet. It was a cool, higher level. Uh, the mosquitoes weren't there. There was, there was coolness that would have helped with a high fever if you had malaria. Again, it's speculation on their part as to what he was dealing with. Now, another possibility that I think is probably more in line with what's going on is that Paul had some kind of an eye issue. Uh, we see in verse 15, Paul says, if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, that could be hyperbole. It could be a figure of speech where Paul says, you guys were willing to do anything for me. You would have given me your right arm. You would have, you know, given me your very eyes, something of great value. Uh, We know that Paul uh, suffered from eye issues. Uh, That's not only known historically, but throughout his writings. When we get to Galatians 6.11, We're going to see where Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Uh, Many of us know what it's like to need larger fonts to be able to read, right? Or we have things like this, you know, reading glasses that we use to help us. And what Paul is saying is my eyesight is getting bad. I, I, I can't see very well. 
in verse 14, he, he mentions how there was something hideous about his appearance due to his illness. So if it was an eye issue, it could have been uh, something like a, a massive case. Have you ever seen somebody with really bad pink eye? You know how you kind of even squint just looking at them? Because you're like, oh, that hurts. You know, your eye's running, it's goopy. It's, uh, and, you know, this is, this is maybe Paul, that he's walking around just with these, these encrusted eyes. It could have been an injury to his eyes. I told you that as we read Acts, we see where Paul was. And in Acts 14, 19 through 20, it tells us, Then some Jews came from Antioch in Iconium, and they won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul, and they dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, and he went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe, which is a town down there in this area of Galatia. Paul was beat up. He was bloody. When you stoned somebody, you rained rocks down on them. You smashed their head, their face, their body. Paul was left for dead. They looked at him. They said, he's dead. And then miraculously, he gets up. He walks back into the city. You can imagine how mangled his body was. If he took a rock to the face, his eyes, you know, could have been put out of socket. It could have been, you know, hanging out here. And again, I'm sorry to be so graphic with you, but Paul says, I was hideous. And he says, and yet you didn't turn away from me. You ministered to me. You, you loved me. In the end, we don't know what the illness was here, but we do know that Paul was struggling in the physical realm. And there are many here this morning that are struggling physically. Many, whether it's current or past, you know what it's like to go through, through extended illness or, or to struggle with, with a physical problem. And, and the longer they last, the more draining they become. They sap our strength. They drain our bank accounts. They can even wipe us out spiritually. We can get to the point where we begin to, to wonder, where is God? Does God love me? Does God see me? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? We can begin to question even the goodness of God. And these are real reactions when we deal with them because we are finite people with a limited understanding, trying to understand an infinite God we read in, in the book of Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah was struggling with the, the hardships of the nation. And as he was talking to God, God's response to him as to why these things were happening in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 is this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have this infinite God in heaven who, if you picture a puzzle, he has the, he has the box with the picture on it. And, and we as limited people get a limited view of what's happening. And sometimes God hands us this, this black, jagged piece of a puzzle. And as, as we get it, we go, this is ugly and I don't like it. And, and we want it out of our life. We want to throw it away. But God says, hold on, you need that piece. Because I know exactly where it fits. Without that piece of the puzzle, the picture will be incomplete. I read something once that said, if you can trust a puzzle company to make sure every piece in the box is there to complete the puzzle, why can't you trust God that every piece in your life is there for a reason? Yeah. 
You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 10, Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh he had. And this was a, uh, a physical issue Paul was dealing with. Again, scholars are not sure of the specifics as to what it is, but it was this recurring physical issue. And Paul, we're told, prayed multiple times for God to take it away. And God's response was not to remove it. Instead, what he did was he gave his grace to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. When you're weak, I'm strong. I'm going to give you what you need. And in the end, Paul ends up praising God for not removing this problem from him. In fact, he thanks God for giving him this limitation that kept him humble and dependent upon God. Sometimes the suffering we go through is so that we can exalt God in the midst of it. It's not about us. It's about reflecting him as we go through it. Think of the story that I read one time of a a woman who was in a Dollar Tree store. She had her her cart full of stuff, and there was this really long line, and there was a a mother with two children in the line in front of her, and she said as as the wait continued on and on, these kids started to get real antsy. One of them was was just a little toddler, and there was another one who was a teenager, and and she said, I was watching these two brothers interacting, and she said the little one was, was screaming and fussing and trying to grab this this package that the older one had, it was a, a, just a package of glow sticks. And as the kid kept screaming and trying to get it, finally the mother reaches over and takes the package from the older son, tears it open and takes out one of the sticks and gives it to the toddler. Now the toddler suddenly is real happy. He's got his stick. He's walking around showing it to everyone, right? You've, and and he's, he's, you know, smiling. Well, suddenly the older boy reaches down and he takes the stick from the toddler, now, the, the little one starts screaming again. And mom was about to, to chastise the older son, but what the older son does is he snapped it, he shook it up, and then he hands it back to the kid. Now, this woman reporting the story says that as we were leaving the store, we were walking out and it had gotten dark. And she says at that moment, the younger one suddenly noticed how the stick was now glowing. And she heard the older one tell her brother, I had to break it so you could get the full effect from it. And at that point, this woman says, I could hear God saying to me, I had to break you to show you why I created you. You have to go through the hard things so that you can fulfill your purpose. That little child was happy just swinging around the unbroken glow stick in the air, but because he didn't understand what it was created to do, which was to glow. And I think that many times we're content to go through life unbroken. We say, God, make my life easy. Don't let any hard things happen to me. Remove these struggles from me. And what God says is, I'm refining you. I'm breaking you. Like gold that is purified, it's put into a fire. And an ancient goldsmith would keep it in the heat of the fire, burning away the dross until his face could be seen reflecting in the molten metal. And then he knew it was ready to come out. And that's what God does to us. He breaks us. He refines us. He makes us more precious so that we reflect fully the image of his son, Jesus. In those times where we get sick, we lose a job, we go through difficulty, God may be refining us and breaking us. Jesus himself went through suffering before he was glorified. 
You know, one of the things that I hate to hear is when people come to me and they say, uh, Pastor Roger, somebody told me that I haven't been healed because I don't have enough faith. That's just bad theology. Did the Apostle Paul have faith? Definitely. And yet God didn't remove his illness from him. And then on the reverse side of that, we see in the scriptures where there was a a father who came to Jesus with a demon-possessed son, and he said, Jesus, will you heal my boy? And Jesus said to him, "Do do you believe that I can? Do you have faith? And the father's honest response was, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't say, well, you don't have enough faith. Get out of here. He healed the boy. Sometimes God is refining us. He takes us through hard things. The Bible tells us God is not only to help us when our faith is weak, he also helps us when we don't even know how to pray. Romans 8.26 tells us, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For if we do not know how to pray as we should, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God is there to help us even when we don't know how to ask for help. God is there to help us sometimes by surrounding us with those who can strengthen and support us. Paul needed that as he went into Galatia, beat up and bruised. And now the Galatians need it as they're they're weak in their faith and they're struggling and they're falling away. And as Paul writes in verse 15, he says, at one time we had this wonderful, loving relationship. He says, but now your attitude's changed. You've grown cold toward me and you've lost the freedom and joy that you had in Christ. Now, now listen, he's not saying they lost their salvation. They were still Christians. What Paul says is you've lost the enjoyment of your salvation. You've lost the freedom that comes in Christ. You've, you've lost what God wants you to have in this close personal walk with him. I wonder how many sitting here this morning feel that way. Does that describe anyone? Do you walk around feeling more guilty than you feel loved by God? Are you, are you more focused on trying to perform than growing in your personal relationship with Christ? You see, that's what legalism does. Legalism becomes this system where we say, I did that, I did, oh, I didn't do that, oh, broke that, forgot that. And, and so instead of seeing how, what we do is we focus on how short we fall rather than seeing how far we've come because of what Christ did on the cross where he saved us. Jesus said, I love you, I died for you, you are mine. John 10, 28 and 29 describes how he closes his nail-scarred hand around us and then the Father closes his hand around and he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Once we come to Christ, we are his for all eternity. We can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our joy. That's why Romans 8, 1 reminds us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And these legalists were snatching away the joy Snatching away the freedom that came with with knowing Christ and and living with him. Paul says in verse 16, "So, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful the kisses of an enemy. And Paul says, I'm your friend. I love you enough to say the hard things. I'm willing to risk uh, the relationship being, you know, grinding and hard. He says, but these Judaizers, they're, they're, they're giving you deceitful kisses. 
They're commending you. They're saying what you want to hear as they eagerly seek you uh, in verse 17. Paul says, hey, listen, I know everybody likes to be sought after, but he says you have to check their motives behind it. And when it comes to the Judaizers, he says their intentions are not honorable. He, he uses this interesting double play on the verb here in verse 17 because what Paul says is the Judaizers were zealous to win over the Galatians so that the Galatians would then be zealous to the Judaizers. What the Judaizers wanted to do, he says, is shut the Galatian believers out of the freedom they had in God's grace and then they would become dependent on the Judaizers. For the Judaizers to say, good job. You get another gold star. You checked off another block. Uh, you, you followed this law. Now do the next and the next. And, and what it would do is it would make the Galatians dependent on them for approval as well as direction. And they would become followers of the Judaizers rather than followers of Jesus Christ. Friends, a true servant of God does not use people to build up the work that he or she is doing. If, if you bump up against somebody who, who says, I need your exclusive allegiance, uh, the, the motive of a true minister is to lead people to Christ and for God to get the glory, not them. It's what cults do. And if you are around people, around teachers, who tell you, well, you need to follow me and do this, this, and this, and I can be the only one who speaks truth to you, that's a very dangerous sign. And Paul says, run away from them. In verse 19, Paul again contrasts himself with the Judaizers. This time he uses the image of a mother who will sacrifice everything for their child. Now, it's, it's interesting that Paul uh, uses this image of a mother because as you read the writings of Paul, as God had Paul write all these different books of the Bible for us, he often refers to himself as a spiritual father. But here he uses the image of a mother. Another thing that's unique here is that Paul calls them my little children in the Greek text. Now, as you read John's writings, uh, John uses this, this designation a lot. He loves to call the believers little children. But this is the one and only time Paul ever uses little children in the writings that God had him do, which again shows this deep love and affection Paul has for these believers in Galatia. And, and the picture Paul paints here is he says this. Pa Paul says, I was like a pregnant woman. And he says, as I birthed the churches in Galatia with God's help and leading, as I helped to bring you to faith in Christ, you became a born-again believer. You have this new life in Christ as you became a follower and you put your faith in him and you were born again. And he says, as, as I rescued you out of paganism, as I pointed you to the truth, as I battled these things, he says, it was hard. It was like a mom giving birth to a baby. And he says, now what has happened is I'm having to go back through the pangs of birth again, this time to keep you from falling to the false teachings of legalism. Any mom who has given birth knows that there, there was joy after the birth. It was painful to give birth. And sometimes even after the kids are born, they still cause us pain, don't they, parents? Right? Because they become disobedient. They fall back into things and have to be corrected. And this is, this is the picture Paul is painting. And as we look at verse 19, Paul builds on this metaphor of giving birth. But this time, he describes the Galatian believers as being those who are the expectant mothers. What he says is, until Christ is formed in you, 
He uses the Greek word morpho here. Morpho describes uh, the development of a baby in utero. It describes how a child is formed and and how it is fully, it is a baby in utero, but there is a point where birth is given. And Paul says, Christ is in you. And he wants to transform you, not to live under the law, but just as a baby is born with new life. He says the, God's goal for us is to have that new life that comes from Christ, to be free, no longer chained uh, by the umbilical cord to the mom. He says you should be walking in freedom at this point. If you go back and look at Galatians 2.20, Paul said there, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is God's goal for us. He wants us to come to faith in Christ, to be a born-again believer. And then he says he wants us to live in that freedom we have in Christ as we grow in our walk with him. As Paul closes out this section, he says in verse 20, I wish I was there with you so that you could see me and I could change the tone of what I'm writing here. Have you ever gotten an email or a text that was in all capital letters? Right? And, and if you know anything about you know, text or email etiquette, you know that if you send something to somebody in all capital letters, that's yelling at somebody. And, and Paul says... I know that this letter you're getting from me. Paul is in a different area writing to them in Galatia. He's heard about it. He's concerned. He says, I know it seems like this all capital email that I'm screaming at you. And he says, I really wish I was there with you. Because if we were face to face, you, you would see my facial expressions. You, you would hear my, my hurt in my voice. You would see my concern. You would see the tears. You would know that I love you. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not mad at you. He says, what's upsetting me is seeing you be brought under bondage that you should be free from. So Paul says, I wish that I was there with you so that you could walk in freedom. The way the Galatians were living was, was like a man who, who wanted to cross the ocean uh, and, and he didn't have any money. As hard as he worked, he never had enough money to buy a ticket to, to get on a cruise ship and go across the ocean. And one day he was given a ticket. Somebody gave him the gift of a, of a ticket and he boarded the boat. And as he was preparing to, to go on this cruise, he packed his bags. Uh, and, and one of the suitcases that he packed was, was a bag that was full of peanut butter and crackers. This entire suitcase was filled to the brim with food. He was going to be on a multi-week trip across the ocean. And he said, I, I need to have food for the journey. And so he boards the boat. He gets in his cabin. And he's there kind of on the cruise. And every day when it was kind of time for meal, he would see all these passengers going to the dining rooms. He would walk past them. He would kind of gaze in there, see, see the big buffets. He'd smell the food. When meals were over, uh, he would hear passengers talking about, oh, I'm so full. I feel like a beached whale. I need, I need to go on a diet when I get home. I'm just stuffed. And yet this guy didn't feel that way because every time when it was time for the meals, he would, he would go to his bag and ration out a, f- a few crackers and peanut butter, and he would sit over in a corner on the deck, and he'd eat his little, his little meal. Day after day, he did this. Day after day, meal after meal, he watched all these other passengers going in and enjoying the feast. 
And after a, a week or two of this happening, one day one of the passengers saw this man over in the corner eating his crackers and peanut butter again, and he came over to him. He said, sir, he said, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I don't really mean to pry. He said, but why don't you ever come in there and join us in the dining room? And this man said, well, I'm, I'm kind of a little embarrassed to say this. He said, you see, I don't have a lot of money, and, and I, really, I, I was given this ticket on the cruise to get you know, from here to there, and, and I don't have the money, so you know, I'm, I'm rationing what I have. And this, this other passenger looks at him and he says, sir, do you not understand that the, the ticket that you were given has paid for all your meals? That, that this is for you to enjoy. You, you can walk in and eat all that you want. Friends, Jesus Christ bought our ticket from earth to heaven. He paid the penalty of death that we owe for our sins. And as we saw earlier, eternal life is not just about when we get to heaven. Eternal life is this journey that we have here on earth as well. God wants us to know him. He wants us to enjoy him, to experience all that he's given to us. As you read John uh, 10, 9 through 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Paul said to the Galatians, and he says to us today, are you living the abundant life that God has purchased for you? Are you enjoying the journey as a believer God doesn't want us living in fear and legalism and in bondage. God has set us free not only from the penalty of our sins, but he set us free from the burden of the law. We still live as children of God in a loving relationship, not under bondage. And this is what Paul wants for them and he wants for us today. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you to do so. To turn to the Lord of life who offers you the gift of eternal life. Not just salvation where one day you're home in heaven, but what life eternal means now, abundant life as we go through this world. If you've never accepted God's gift of grace to you, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He has a gift of grace for you. And what we have to do is acknowledge we're sinners in need of him as our savior. Accept his payment in your place and you will be made a son or a daughter of God. You will be welcomed home into the family of God. If you'd like to do that, I invite you to bow your heads with me now and to ask God uh, to give you this gift of grace by accepting his son, Jesus. If you'd like to do that, then just pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I thank you that you love me. You love me so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to be the payment for me, to pay the penalty of death that I owed. Today, Jesus, I accept that gift that you've given to me. I know I need you as my Savior. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't work my way to you. And I don't have to because you, Jesus, finished the work on the cross. You paid the penalty in full. You closed the account. And today I accept that gift of new and eternal life. And God, for all of us, new believers at this very moment or those who have walked with you for a long, long time, we ask God that you would help us to understand our position in Christ, 
the freedom that we have, the joy in the journey that you want us to experience. And so, God, would we live in freedom? Would we walk with you? Would we live a life that is pleasing to you, not to earn our way to heaven, but as a thank you for the gift you've given to us? Thank you, God, for the gift of grace. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.